It is often said that God created ex nihilo. Out of nothing, God made something. But the Bible does not really attest to that. According to Genesis, God got a canvas on which to create. There was emptiness, a formless void, but there was also something called the deep. I picture an endless sea on a moonless night. The deep. It's what God had to work with in order to create. God's Spirit moved over these deep waters before the light of the first dawn. God separated these waters so that some would flow on the earth while others were poised to fall from the sky. And in time, God gathered some of the waters on the earth together into seas so that dry land could emerge and life could burst forth. This is not a scientific account of how the world began. It is a theological narrative. It's meant to tell us something essential about who God is, what God is like. In seminary, I learned to interpret this story as evidence for God's incredible creative power. But then I also learned to interpret it as evidence for God's orderly nature. Our God brings order out of chaos. For me, this was a comforting way to think about God. It appealed to me as a perfectionist, and it appealed to me as a Presbyterian. We Presbyterians love to do things decently and in order. This phrase of the Apostle Paul's is ingrained into our tradition. We like order, and we like to imagine a God who likes order as much as we do. Especially in a season of uncertainty and unrest, this orderly God appeals to us. Over the past few years, I have learned to question and to hold lightly some of those images of God which appeal most to me. My liking them might say more about me than it does about God. It is possible, it's even likely, that I read the Bible in self-serving ways sometimes. I think it's hard for all of us as human beings not to remake God in our image. And if we do that, we can end up living a faith that really has nothing to do with God and everything to do with us. This is one reason we worship, why we study the Bible, why we practice faith together. I need you in order to see me. But many of you are a lot like me. Most of us in this church and in our Presbyterian denomination have something in common. Most of us are white. Most, though not all of us, have experienced significant privileges in life due to the color of our skin. Other factors like gender, sexuality, class, disability, ethnicity, these may complicate your experience of privilege. But the fact of white racial privilege remains. This might be hard to hear. It might be hard to believe. But the evidence for white privilege is overwhelming once you start to notice it. I remember when I realized how many products were really designed with me as a white person in mind. Soft pink band-aids, nude pantyhose. They do not match just anyone's flesh tone. I've always been able to walk into a store and find shampoo that will suit the texture of my hair. I've also never been followed in a store, though my friends who are people of color tell me 
It's happened to them. The public schools I attended as a child in Nashville had bigger budgets and they were higher performing than any of the schools in the black neighborhoods in town. And there's more. It adds up. And it turns deadly. For those without privilege or with less privilege, they suffer. The Center for Disease Control is now reporting that racial and ethnic minorities are disproportionately affected by COVID-19, whether that's because of poor living conditions, working in essential industries without paid sick leave, or just having underlying health conditions or lower access to quality health care. And then it comes to policing. Black people are three times as likely as white people to be killed by police. And an in-depth study in 2017 showed that when unarmed people were killed by police, most of them were people of color. Friends, something is wrong. Racism is hiding. It's hiding beneath the surface of what feels like normal life. And for centuries, white Christians have chosen to remain unconscious about this, even though this issue is plaguing the country that we love. Last week, the author Margaret Rankle wrote an open letter to my fellow white Christians. You may have seen it in the New York Times. You might call it incendiary. Rankle says, since the beginning, our country has been in flames. These are her words. When we arrived on our big ships and decimated this land's original peoples with our, with our viruses and our guns, when we used our Christian faith as a justification for killing both heretic and heathen, we founded this country in flames. And every month, every week, every day, for the last 400 years, we have been setting new fires. Rankle calls out white Christians for listening to leaders who weaponize fear, for refusing to scrutinize violence in our public life, for investing in prisons for other people's children and in mental health treatment for our own. White Christians have failed to notice or to demonstrate compassion for people who are different from us, and especially for black people, Rankle says. In her words, we should know better by now. She goes on, there are so many resources to help us know better. Yet too many Christians ignore the history books that document the terrible legacy of slavery. We ignore the novelists who tell us why the caged bird sings. We ignore the poets who teach us the cruel cost of a dream deferred. In our carefully preserved ignorance, we pile all their books up on a great pyre and we set them on fire. I want to put that another way. Our ignorance, our shared refusal to know the truth, it's like the deep from long ago, except this time we have dug the depths, we have filled them, and we have fallen in, in the deep, in the deep where down is up and up is down, where we cannot see the surface nor does it seem that we can get to the bottom of it. We cannot see ourselves. We cannot see the world as it is. We cannot see, our, see each other fully. 
We're in an endless sea on a moonless night. That's what it feels like. We're swimming in it. What we are swimming in, some have called it sin. But perhaps, perhaps the Spirit of God is still hovering over these rough waters. Maybe, just maybe, God can bring order out of this chaos of our creating. Since the coronavirus came and we were first told to stay home, I have longed for life to get back to normal, and I know you have too. I'd have this longing, and then somebody, whether it was a health official or just a friend, would tell me, you know, things are going to be different. There's going to be a new normal. I know, I'd say, a new normal. But in my heart, I was still holding a candle for old normal. I have to tell you, the current movement for racial justice has blown that candle out. I am praying for God to bring order to the chaos of this world, but I've stopped asking God for things to go back to the way they were. I like order, but not order for its own sake, not order that protects me and harms others. I love peace. I love peace, but not without justice. I want a new normal. No, I want a new creation. I want the world as it's meant to be, not as it has become, not as we've just gotten used to it. How can we know if we are headed that way? If we're even pointed in the right way? It's a complicated question, but from today's scripture from Genesis, I think we have a few clues. A few clues. I see, I see truths about God here that are relevant today as they were in the beginning. When God creates, abundant life is what comes. God gave structure to earth and sky and water for the sake of life so that vegetation would spring forth in all its various forms as we just heard. Eventually, the sea and the sky and the land, they were all full of creatures, including human beings. Life, life and more life. That has always been God's vision. So instead of asking, where is God? We can look around us. Where does life spring forth? Where is life nurtured? Where is life cherished? And not just for some, and not just for most, but for every single one. You might have heard it in this first chapter of Genesis, that word every, every, it keeps coming up again and again. Plants of every kind. Later on, animals of every kind. And human beings, well, presumably of every kind and each one in the image of God. Where is God? Where is the everyness of our human family represented? Where is it celebrated? There is God. We can also know, we know this from Genesis, that when God creates, God does not act alone. If you look closely, you will see that God is the subject of most of the verbs, but not of all of them. At God's command, it is the earth, the earth itself that brings forth vegetation. 
And later it is the creatures themselves that multiply and fill the earth with life. All of us, all of us have a role to play in the remaking of the world. God is not going to do it without us. If we choose to answer God's call to join God in the recreating of the world, we will be signing up for hard work, outer work in the world and inner work in ourselves. And it's this inner work, my friends, that has to come first and it's difficult and it's uncomfortable. It may take time for us to see the shore ahead of us. It may take time before we can step together out of these depths and onto the dry land. Several years ago, I got to hear the Reverend Dr. Willie James Jennings speak. Jennings is a black man, a Baptist minister, and a theologian whose work centers on racism in the church. His talk profoundly affected me back at that time, and it is still relevant now. I'd like to share some of his thoughts with you. Jennings, among many others, is seeking to overcome racism in the church. To do this, he says, we will have to change our minds in deep and essential ways. To the extent that we have been insiders, we must learn to identify with outsiders. Indeed, Jennings says, all Gentile Christians, and that's the overwhelming majority of Christians regardless of color, all of us were outsiders until Jesus, a Jewish man, gathered us to the God of Israel. And because of this history, we should see ourselves as those who always understand what life was like from the margins. We ought to be people who understand what it means to be an outsider and who live in ways that are always inclusive, built on an abiding humility and a sense of grace. Part of what it means to be a Christian is never to be comfortable in the seat of power, never to be comfortable in the center. Jesus was all about giving up power willingly and moving toward the margins. This is who we are meant to be, and we have forgotten this. We can still remember. What is essential as well to overcome racism is that we wholeheartedly reject a way of life that imagines we are first and always teachers, rather than being first and always learners. Rather than being first and always teachers, we have to learn to be first and always learners. Those are Jennings' words. They are powerful. They are hard because many of us are used to being experts. We have opinions. We can weigh in on politics, on policies, on the way things ought to be. But now is the time to learn, to put on a beginner's mind. Those who have seen life from the bottom rather than from the top, those who have simply seen life from another side, they have still seen as much as you have, as much as I have. They need to be heard. Now is the time, as Emily said, to listen more than we talk. I think it's also the time to ask more than we answer to support more than we tear down, to hear and to hold, even when we might feel guilt or shame or defensiveness or confusion, just to stick with it, 
to open up, to be learners first. I am so hopeful that you and I can embrace that identity, that we can be learners first. After all, we are already disciples. We are not only Jesus' followers or his friends, we are his students. This is who we are. And if anti-racism, in the words of Austin Channing Brown, if it is the work of becoming a better human to other humans, then I think it's on the syllabus of the one who said, love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, what if this is an opportunity for us to have a closer walk with Jesus? Our calling no matter our color, is to seek God's movement in the world and to join it. Our calling is to rise up out of ignorance and delusion and privilege and whatever else is keeping us comfortable because we practice the faith of the marginalized, of outsiders who've been brought in. With humility, we are called to be learners first, to be learners now in this moment before we are speakers Before we are teachers, experts, or leaders, let us be learners. Change is going to come. The question is whether we ourselves are open to changing. Will we put our faith in the God of creation and transformation and new life? Or will we keep treading water in the dark? Amen.